Well, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. We are ready to begin the next major section of this most important of the letters in the New Testament. And that's saying a lot, because when we come to the letters of the New Testament, what we have is the inspired Holy Spirit commentary on the accomplishment of Jesus Christ in instituting the New Covenant. That what Jesus Christ came and accomplished in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his session at the right hand of God, all of the significance of that is detailed, explained in doctrine in the letters of the New Testament. It's the pinnacle of God's revelation. And Romans comes first in the letters of the New Testament, not just because it's a long book, but because it is foundational. It is essential. It is so important. And here, when we come to Romans 9 through 11, we're changing gears from what we have been looking at. Not that it's not related to what's gone before. It certainly is. But there's a a sharp difference in tone here at the beginning of Romans 9 from where we left off in Romans 8. And Paul is taking up a new subject, and he's going to be covering some material here in Romans 9, 10, and 11 that are pretty unique in the New Testament to these chapters. There's not a lot of repeat of what we have here throughout the rest of the New Testament. Of course, the rest of the New Testament comports with it. They complement one another. But we would be poorer as a church without Romans 9 through 11. And I'm excited about teaching it to you. Here we have the outline for the book. Here we have the outline for the book that I have given to us to consider. And we've made it through the first eight chapters. We've looked at the works of mankind and the sinfulness of man, which calls out for our need for salvation, the need for justification. And this is the work of Christ. Christ came and his offering of himself as a sacrifice for sin satisfied the wrath of God against sin so that sinners can be reconciled to God. We can be forgiven our sins. We can have a right standing before God in his courtroom. The work of Christ is a work of justifying the sinner. And that was the main thrust of Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 4, verse 25. And having established the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and not according to our goodness and our works and our merit, but according to Christ's work and God's grace in Christ. Then we saw in Romans 5 through 8 how the Holy Spirit is poured out into the lives of believers. So not only do we have a righteous standing before God, but we have been set free from our lives in order to be able to live righteously a life that is pleasing to God, a life that is in step with God's Spirit. And that was really the main thrust of Romans 5 through 8, talking about our relationship to the law, contrasting the flesh and the Spirit, and culminating in that really joyful chapter there at the end of that section in Romans chapter 8. This morning, we embark into Romans 9 through 11. And I'm going to warn you up front, there's some difficult doctrines here in Romans 9 through 11 that has been a source of contention and even division, in the body of Christ, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. The doctrines that are difficult here in Romans 9 through 11 are really in two categories. One area is the area of Calvinism versus Arminianism. And there's a Calvinistic branch of the church and there's an Arminian branch of the church. The the main issue is concerning free will and predestination. 
God's election, God's predestination, and human free will. How do we understand that according to the scriptures? And it's a a strong element of the teaching here in Romans 9 through 11. And so those two branches of the church are going to read it and interpret it differently. The other major doctrinal issue here in Romans 9 through 11 is between another couple of branches of Christianity, and that is those who are dispensational in their understanding of prophecy and God's plan for the future, and those who are covenant theologians in how they interpret prophecy and what they think is God's plan for the future. And this impacts our view of the millennium, it impacts our view of the tribulation and the rapture, and also impacts our current understanding of the relationship of Israel and the church. That for 1,500 years, God was working with the nation of Israel. That was the people who had the scriptures. That was the people who had the temple. That was the people who had the prophets. And all the other nations, well, they could look to Israel as a light that was shining in a dark place. But God's work was with the nation of Israel first and foremost. But now we have entered into an age we call the church age, where the message of Jesus Christ has gone out to all the nations. And most of the Jewish people in the world are not Christians. They're not followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so how are we supposed to understand that change? How is it that those who had the prophets and the scriptures and and God as their special relationship and covenant with him have missed out, so to speak, on the new covenant and following their Messiah, Jesus Christ? So that understanding of God's plan, his dealings with the people of Israel, the church, whether you have a dispensational understanding of those things or a covenant theology understanding of those things, Well, these chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11, have strong bearing on those subjects as well. Now, I'll let you know right up front, I'm a Calvinist and I'm a dispensationalist. I'm not ashamed of being a Calvinist. I'm not ashamed of being a dispensationalist. And at the same time, I hope that you will find me to be a Calvinist and a dispensationalist who is reasonable, who is patient, who is willing to discuss issues and talk about them. I understand that there are differences of opinion and different views here, and I want to pursue the truth in love. That is, that is the, the passion of the Spirit of God dwelling within us, is that we pursue the truth with love for one another. So if you have a non-Calvinist position or a non-dispensational position on these chapters and on the Scripture in general, You are welcome to your interpretation. You're welcome to discuss it with me. You should expect to find me and the other leaders and teachers and elders in our church to be good listeners, to be patient teachers, to be strong in our position, but also to be respectful towards those who see it differently. I hope that that spirit will be manifest throughout our study of Romans 9 through 11. So with that introduction... Let's go ahead and take a look at our outline for today. There's the rest of the outline for the book of Romans. You see, we still have the Father's will in Romans 9 through 11, the church's work in Romans 12 through 15, and then the conclusion there in the last chapter and a half. Today, we have the title for our sermon, Love for Israel. That is really what these first five verses in Romans 9 are all about. First, Paul's love for Israel, but secondly, God's love for the nation of Israel. Now, us not being Israelites, I mean, some of you might have a little bit of Jewish blood in you, but as far as I know, we're all Gentiles. Us being non-Israelites, we might wonder, well, why do I come to church to hear a message on Israel? 
They're a nation on the other side of the world. And yeah, we do have Jews here in America, but not that many in Firth. And you wonder, well, can't we have something that's a little bit more practical, something that's a little bit more relevant than, than God's love for another nation, the nation of Israel? Well, God knows what we need. God knows what is a good diet for the Christian soul. And he puts this food out here for us to partake of. And it is going to have a lot of good practical effect in your life. You don't always know what the effect of each thought is going to be. But one thought connects to another thought. One belief leads on to another belief. And if you can organize your thinking around the Word of God, if you can establish your mind, your worldview, according to Scripture, you're going to find that it bears tremendous good fruit. And as God has revealed Himself in time space through history, He has revealed Himself through the nation of Israel. That's been His choice. And if you don't understand God's love for the nation of Israel, then you are not going to have a good grasp of the Bible. This is an important idea, and that's why God, through his apostle, gives us these chapters in the most important foundational book of the New Testament devoted to this idea that God loves the nation of Israel. So let's go ahead and read the first five verses here. You follow along in your Bibles. I'll read it out loud for us. Notice the sharp tonal shift. We come at the end of Romans chapter 8 to, to this almost poetical, exuberant expression of triumph that I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I think, you know, you could have put an amen right there at the end of that passage and that is a great conclusion. Now, without any connection, he starts a new section. He doesn't have a therefore or an and or in light of this or anything like that to bring us into the next chapter. He starts off with a solemn statement, a solemn testimony. Listen to what it says. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now that's where he puts his amen there at the end of this section. Now, Paul begins with this shocking testimony of his intense love for his nation, the people of Israel. Paul's love for Israel is the big idea there in verses 1 through 3. And he starts it off wanting to impress more than any other thing perhaps he says in all of his letters. He is so serious about this oath. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. That's two ways of saying it. It's both positively, I'm speaking the truth, and negatively, I'm not lying. So the repetition here is for solemn emphasis. And when you read the text in the Greek... One of the special 
elements of the Greek language is, is that word order is not fixed in the Greek language like it is in English. Like in English, you've got to put the subject uh, first, and then you put the verb, and then you put the object of the verb. Subject, verb, object. You guys learned that in grammar school, right? Well, in Greek, it doesn't have to be that way. You can put the subject last, you can put it first, you can put it in the middle, you can put it anywhere you want because each word has a specific ending so you know what role it's playing in the sentence and it doesn't have to be according to word order. So in the Greek, if you want to emphasize something in the sentence, you'll either put it first or you'll put it last. And that was the way they, they put emphasis on the part of the sentence that they really wanted to highlight. And the first word here in this sentence in Greek is truth. Truth. I'm speaking truth. Paul wants us to know that this is a true testimony. Now you say, well, I'm a Christian. I think everything in the Bible is true. I don't need Paul to tell me this is true because it's in the Bible. Well, Paul wants us to know that this is truth because there were a lot of people who would have doubted it. There were a lot of people living at the time of Paul who might not have recognized this as the word of God. People who were not Christians, Jewish people, Israelites, who would have said, that Paul, he used to be one of us. He used to love the people of Israel. But now he loves those Gentiles. And he has turned his back on us. And he's a traitor. And he is against everything that we hold dear. And they looked at Paul with deep suspicion. The Jewish people in Paul's day looked at him as the Judas. They looked at him as the worst enemy. You know, your worst enemy is not the person who believes something differently than you. Your worst enemy is the person who used to be right where you are and who has stabbed you in the back. And that's how people thought about the Apostle Paul. They thought, this guy is a backstabber, he's betrayed his people, and, and we hate him. You know, the, the hatred that Jewish people had for non-Jews was paling in comparison for the hatred that they would have for a traitor among their own ranks. And that's true for all people. We all hate traitors more than somebody that's never even been a part of our group. And so Paul wants the people of Israel, and he wants Jewish Christians, and he wants Gentile Christians to know about his intense love for the people of Israel. And that's why he says, I'm speaking the truth. I'm not lying. And not only does he say that, but then he further reinforces it by saying, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So he's speaking the truth in Christ. Christ is the truth. And Paul is united to Jesus Christ in spirit. And so Paul is not able to lie on this occasion because the Holy Spirit is within him and he is united with Christ and he's speaking from that relationship with Christ with sincerity and integrity. And the Holy Spirit is informing his conscience that the human conscience is that within us which tells us what is right and wrong. And not only does Paul have a conscience, but he's got a Holy Spirit-informed conscience, that the Holy Spirit has been teaching him and molding him and shaping his heart over the years that he has been a follower of Jesus Christ and received the gift from heaven of God's own Spirit. And so there's great solemnity in Paul's introduction here. Why does he have to be so solemn? Why have there been so many accusations that Paul had in fact become a hater of Israel and the Jews? Well, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. It wasn't that long ago that we were studying 1 and 2 Thessalonians in our pulpit here. A great study that these letters are able to contribute to our doctrine of prophecy 
what's going to happen in the future, God's plan for the world, God's plan for Israel. That's the unique contribution of these letters, although they also contain much other that is edifying. But when we were studying through 1 Thessalonians, when we came to chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, we found these words written by the Apostle Paul, same man who wrote Romans, and he writes here about the Jews. He says, the Jews, there at the end of verse 14, killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. And they displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as to always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. To the utmost would be another way of translating that wrath has come upon them to the utmost. And so you say, well, Paul, you know, I thought you loved Israel. Those are some pretty hard words for somebody that you love. They killed the Lord Jesus. They drove us out. They prevent us from speaking to the Gentiles so they can be saved. They're always filling up the measure. No, it's always filling up the measure of their sin. Does that sound like somebody who loves you? Well, it depends. Is it true? Is it true? Now, if it's not true, then it's the words of a slanderer. And it's somebody who does, in fact, probably hate you. But if it is true, remember what the scripture says? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. May we all have friends who will tell us the truth, even when it hurts. The Apostle Paul was speaking the truth about his nation here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, what some people consider to be the most anti-Semitic words in all of the Bible. It's words like this that drive the nations to persecute and hate the Jews. Well, Paul didn't call for any persecution and hatred of the Jews in this verse, does he? No, he doesn't. He's just speaking the truth about the Jewish unbelief and rebellion against God. It's possible for somebody to see the flaws of somebody that they love and still love them deeply. That's where Paul is with his people Come with me also to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 22. Back up before Romans, the last historical book out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the historical books of the New Testament, the book of Acts included in that. Recording the history, not only the life of Jesus Christ, but then in the book of Acts, recording the history of the first century church, notably through the ministry of Peter and Paul. That's what Acts records is the ministry of Peter and Paul in the gospel. And so when we come to Acts 22, we're in the second half of the book, and we've transitioned from the early ministry of Peter in Jerusalem to the ministry of Paul in the ministry to the Gentiles that God called him to. And in Acts chapter 22, Paul has visited Jerusalem. And he has not been well received by the Jews who are in Jerusalem. But in fact, they see him as the traitor that we talked about. Look at Acts chapter 22. After Paul is waylaid in the temple and they're beating him and he gets arrested he has several trials and he gets an opportunity to speak before the people acts chapter 22 verse 21 you see that paul was speaking to the crowds and he said go this is a recording of what jesus christ told him after the stoning of stephen in verse 20 
the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to the Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ told Paul, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, up until that point, you see that in verse 22, the people of Israel, the people in Jerusalem, had been willing to listen to him. They're like, all right, we've heard a lot of things about this guy. We've heard that he hates us, that he hates our law, he hates our temple, that, that he's uh, turned his back on all this stuff that he grew up with. Let's hear his defense. Let's hear what he has to say for himself. But as soon as he says that the Lord Jesus Christ was going to send him to the Gentiles, up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Wow, that's a pretty strong response. What did he say that, that he should not be allowed to live for? Well, he said that Christ was going to send the message of God to the Gentiles. Wow. That's why Paul wrote what he wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. They're filling up the measure of their sin. They're preventing Paul and the other apostles from taking the message of eternal life to the Gentiles according to the prophetic plan of God revealed through the prophet Isaiah. They're filling up the measure of their sin. They did kill the Lord Jesus Christ. They did persecute the apostles. They did oppose the gospel of God that they should have believed and accepted. It's all true. So Paul loves his people even though his people do not understand or perceive his love. And that's why he starts off in Romans chapter 9 with such a solemn testimony before God with the Holy Spirit in Christ that he's speaking the truth when he says this. What is the remarkable claim, the rather extreme claim that he makes in verse 3? So it goes contrary to everything that people were saying about Paul. And it's such an outlandish claim that he makes in verse 3 that that's why he has to introduce it the way that he does in verse 2. The claim is this. Paul says, personal testimony, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. This is the change in tone from chapter 8. We go from joyful celebration to solemn, sorrowful testimony. And he says that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. For what? Why? Why do you have this sorrow and anguish? He says, for I could wish, here's, here's a, an incredible claim, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. You have to stop and think about what Paul is saying here to realize just how incredible it sounds. Paul is praying, or he says, I could pray, if it was possible, that he himself would miss out on the glories of God's coming kingdom and that he himself would be cast out into the outer darkness that Jesus Christ talked about where the flame doesn't die and the worm never perishes, that in that place of eternal torment, Paul says, I could wish that I would go to eternal destruction and lose my relationship with God if that meant that my fellow Israelites could be saved. That's an incredible claim. I don't know if I've ever wanted anyone or any group to be saved that much. 
think about entering into eternal hell. Dante wrote his Inferno trying to imagine what it would be like. and He had written over the gates of hell, Abandon hope, ye who enter here. An existence without hope. And not just the torment and the pain of hell, but think about missing out on knowing God and fellowshipping with Christ. Paul's life, his joy, was in knowing God, in walking with Christ. Would Paul give that up and be cut off from Christ and separated from Him for anything? This is a very hard-to-believe claim that the Apostle Paul is making. A love like this is not a human love. This is a divine love. And it doesn't come just from Paul, but it comes from the Spirit of Christ within Paul. His union with Christ, his filling with the Spirit of Christ, is what's giving him the love of Christ for the people of Israel. And Jesus Christ is the one who allowed himself to be under God's curse so that he might save his people. I believe that God gave this amazing love to the Apostle Paul so that Paul could be the one to write Romans 9 through 11. Only a man who had this kind of love would be chosen by God in order to write Romans 9 through 11. There's a purpose in everything that God does. I love this incredible, I love this amazing, it must be for a purpose. Now, let's think a little bit about whether or not it's right for Christians to have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in our hearts. You say, well, hold on a second there, Paul. Weren't you the one who commanded to Christians to rejoice always, as you wrote to the Thessalonians in chapter 5? Paul, weren't you the one who wrote the letter on joy to the church at Philippi and said, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Paul, how can you be rejoicing always and have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in your heart? Well, as strange as it may seem to us, joy and sorrow are not mutually exclusive emotions. You might think so, but if you've lived long enough and reflected on your own experiences as a human being created in the image of God, you'll recognize that that joy and sorrow are often housed in the same heart simultaneously. God does. God weeps. He laments. He sorrows at the sin that's in the world, at the evil that is destroying His creation and the people that He has made. And yet God has unending joy, unfathomable joy. Within the heart of God, there is joy and there is sorrow simultaneously. And there's room enough in the human heart for it as well. Jesus was a great example of this. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, according to Isaiah chapter 53. And yet, he was a man of deep and abiding joy. My joy I give to you. Not as the world gives, but the very joy of Jesus Christ, the man who was able to, for the joy that was set before him, endure the cross and despise the shame. Think about the bittersweet experience of Jesus Christ on the cross. What sorrow he felt 
when he was made sin on our behalf and he drank the bitter cup. No man can imagine the sorrow of Jesus Christ in that moment fully. But think about the joy of Jesus Christ with the hope, the expectation of what he was accomplishing, the result that was going to come from this sorrow. Joy and sorrow at the same time. Good Friday. It's also bad Friday. It's both. And so the Apostle Paul, as a representative of Christian, shows us what our heart is like in this world. Yes, we rejoice in the Lord, but we sorrow over the sin that is in the world at the same time. And if you only sorrow over the world and you don't rejoice in the Lord, well, that's not going to be good for you. If you only rejoice in the Lord and you don't sorrow over the sin that's in the world, well, that's not going to be good for you either. You need both, the joy and the sorrow. And Paul sets a good example for us here. This is good emotional intelligence for us Christians. So you don't go around telling Christians, you shouldn't be sorrowful, you shouldn't have anguish in your heart. Jesus did. Paul did. You going to tell them they're sinning because they're sorrowful? Maybe we need more of this kind of sorrow. Maybe we need to weep. Have you ever wept over a lost neighbor? A lost family member? A lost child? Paul had that kind of love for the people of Israel. And he wants them to know it and he wants the church to know it because this is not just grounded in Paul's relationship to his nation. As much as filial love is important, as much as national love is important, as, as much as patriotic love is important, this goes beyond that. This is a love that is connected to a special people, God's people. And because Israel is God's people, there is a love for the nation of Israel that exists in the heart of someone who loves God. Just like somebody who loves you cares about those people who are important to you. And so the one who loves God cares about the people who are important to God. And Israel is very important to God. Israel is very important to God. Let Jew haters in Christianity, Jew haters in Muslim nations, let them learn the lesson of Romans 9 through 11 that you don't touch the apple of God's eye and call yourself God's friend. You don't threaten violence and hatred against the people of Israel and have love for God in your heart. You can't kick God's son without kicking God at the same time. There's two reasons for Paul's great love for Israel. One is the national connection, the family relation. But secondly is God's love for Israel. And that's what he dwells on in verses 4 and 5. Let's take a look then at verses 4 and 5 in more detail. I wish that I myself, I could wish, that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, Paul says, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He wants to be very clear who he's talking about. Not the church brothers, but the brothers in Israel, his nation, according to the flesh, by genetics. They are Israelites. That special title that is reserved for the Jewish nation. The people who came from the body of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The twelve patriarchs. These are the Israelites. The name Israel goes back to Genesis chapter 32. When God changed the name of Jacob to Israel. 
God gave Jacob this new name to signify that God was going to bless the nation that came from him. That the promises that God had made to Abraham were passed on to Isaac, and now they were going through Jacob and to his twelve sons after him, that God would be their God, and they would be his people. That's what the name Israel means. But when you look at the actual literal meaning of the word Israel, it means someone who wrestles with God, because that's what happens in Genesis chapter 32. The pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord, as he's called in the Old Testament, appears to Jacob, and Jacob is wrestling with him, quite literally, but also with great metaphorical and spiritual meaning. And Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And so God changed his name to Israel, the one who wrestles with God. Why does he wrestle with God? Because he wants the blessing. This is the spirit of prayer that God calls us to as well, to wrestle with God in prayer in order to receive the blessings that God is able to give. He wants us to want it so badly that we're willing to do anything in order to get it. That was the whole point of Jesus' parables about the treasure hidden in the field. A man goes and sells everything that he has to buy that field because he's willing to do anything and give up anything in order to get the blessing from God. Strive to enter by that narrow gate is what Jesus Christ said. So Israel is that people of God the ones who wrestle with God and whom God has chosen to bless. Let's go on to Deuteronomy 7, 6. Here's a great verse to describe the relationship of Israel to God. Deuteronomy 7, 6, in the eternal word of God. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Israel is unique. Israel is special. Paul is reaffirming that in no uncertain terms in these three chapters and here in these opening verses. The Israelites, who are they? It doesn't say who they were. They are Israelites. And it doesn't say to them belonged the adoption, but to them belongs the adoption and everything else that is in the list. This is the current blessedness that shows God's great love for this particular nation. So Paul lists for us eight privileges of the nation of Israel that shows how much God loves them in these two verses. Eight privileges of the nation of Israel that shows how much God loves them. Let's take a look at them in brief. Now, before we actually dive into the list... Turn back a few pages in Romans to chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now, in Romans chapter 2, what Paul had done, you recall, was he had shown how the Jewish people were also guilty of sin before God and had no claim for righteousness in God's sight based upon their own keeping of God's law. 
Yes, they had received God's law. Yes, they were special to God. But they were sinners, just like the Gentiles, because they had also broken God's law. And so, with the guilt of the Jew being established in Romans chapter 2, Paul goes on to ask the question in chapter 3, then what advantage has the Jew? I thought they were God's people. If they're sinners on their way to hell, just like the Gentiles are sinners on the way to hell, then what's so special about being God's nation? be an obvious question to ask, right? And I'm sure Paul got that question quite a lot. And so he says, in answer to that question in verse 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, he doesn't go any further in his list there in Romans chapter 3. He just gives one example that the what he calls is the first and foremost of it, that to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Having started in chapter 3, verse 2, Paul continues in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. So if you wanted to, you could add Romans 3, 2 here as number 0 at the top of the list, or just move them all down one, and say they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They had the, the Holy Scriptures, the Bible. That's the first one he mentions back in chapter 3. But now he's going to continue with his list, What's the advantage of the Jew? What has God done to demonstrate his love for the Jewish people? Well, this is it. Here's the list. And it's not even a complete list. I'd say this is also a partial list, but it's, it's pretty complete. It covers a large range of God's blessings to the nation of Israel. And number one is adoption. To them belongs the adoption. This is a different kind of adoption than what we have in Romans chapter 8. Very similar but what we have in Romans chapter 8 is the adoption into God's family based upon justification and the blessings of the new covenant. What we have here in this verse is the adoption of God of the nation, not of the individuals per se in that nation, but of the nation as a whole. This is national adoption. This is corporate adoption, not individual personal adoption. Romans chapter 8 talks about the blessing we have of individually, personally being saved by God and incorporated into his family through personal faith in Jesus Christ. But what Paul's talking about here is the national adoption of the group that God accomplished in the Old Testament. I put the reference up there to Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23. That's where God tells Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let my son go. And if you will not, if you continue to enslave and abuse my son, then I'm going to kill your firstborn son, Pharaoh. Pharaoh, the way you feel about your firstborn son, the way you would deal with somebody who mistreated your firstborn son, well, I'm a great king over all the earth. I'm the God who created the heavens and the earth. And Israel is my firstborn son. And if you do not let him go, you will feel my wrath. So the adoption of Israel as God's son shows how special they are, how wonderful they are to him, how he feels about them. And then you see, secondly, God gave them the blessing of the glory. And I put up there the word Shekinah. The Shekinah is the glory of God's presence. 
the glory of God's presence coming down on Mount Sinai, the glory of God's presence coming and filling the tabernacle at the end of the book of Exodus, the glory of God's presence coming down and filling the temple after it was constructed in the days of Solomon, the glory of God that led them through the wilderness with the pillar of fire and the cloud, that glory of God, God's very presence with them, was what showed them that they were special to him, that God loved them. You know, there's no greater gift that you can give to somebody than the gift of your time, your presence, a relationship. And that's the love that God showed towards the people of Israel. I'm going to dwell among you. Even though you are an unclean and ungodly people, I'm going to provide sacrifices for your sin. I'm going to provide the priest and the Levitical system in order to make atonement so that I can dwell in your midst separating you, making you distinct from every other nation on the earth who have temples with idols and lifeless things, you've got the living God dwelling and living among you. The presence of God himself leading them and dwelling among them. That was the sign and the evidence of God's great love for Israel. And number three, the covenants. That God gave them the covenants of promise, as Paul calls them as he writes to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 12. The covenants of promise. Now, it wasn't that long ago we had two messages on the covenants of God back in May, May 3rd and May 10th of last year, 2020. And so I'm not going to go into a full teaching of the covenants, but you certainly could launch into that from this verse. I encourage you to go back and listen to those messages if you need more on what are the covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. These covenants that were made with Israel, they were given to Israel. And they still belong to Israel. These are Israel's covenants. Even the new covenant is given to Israel. It's their covenant. The Christ is for them. Now, the fourth one on the list, the giving of the law. And you might say, well, what good is the giving of the law? I mean, it just brings death and judgment to the people of Israel, right? That's what Paul was talking about in Romans 5, 6, and 7, that the law brings condemnation. Well, thanks, For the law, thanks for all that condemnation. Well, that's just one aspect of the law. That's just looking at the law in accordance with our failure to keep the law. But the law in and of itself was a good gift. It was a precious gift. Remember Psalm 119. Oh, how I love thy law. And God told the people of Israel that this righteous law, this good law that I'm giving to you, is your wisdom in the sight of all the nations. What other nation is there that has a law with such righteous principles as what I have given to you, my people Israel? The law was a gift of love from God to his people. Don't lose sight of that aspect of the law. Here Paul is praising the law as a gift from God to show his great love to his people. There can be more than one thing true about the law at the same time, right? It can bring judgment and condemnation. It also is a wonderful gift of wisdom. And then he lists the temple worship after the giving of the law. When he says the worship, he's talking about the Levitical worship, the system of worship that was involved with the tabernacle and the temple revealed in the Pentateuch, and then continued on throughout Israel's history until the first temple was destroyed, but then with the rebuilding of the temple and the temple and the service that was there still in existence when Paul was writing Romans chapter 9. The Jews still had their temple. The Levitical system was still in operation. They were still making the sacrifices. And this was a gift from God. This is what made them special among all the nations. 
They had the temple of God with divinely ordered worship. No other nation had that. What a gift. What love God showed to the people of Israel. You know, the people of Israel might look at their judgment and say, how has God loved us? Look, we're judged, we're trampled upon. We were destroyed by the Babylonians. We were destroyed by the Romans. We were harassed throughout the centuries of Christianity and almost hunted to extinction in World War II. And now we're hated by all the Muslims who surround us. And and the people of Israel might say, how does God love us? And Paul says, look, you are adopted. You had the glory, the covenants, the giving of the promises, the worship, the law, the patriarchs. Number seven, he lists the the patriarchs. The promises refer to the messianic promises and the promises of God's coming kingdom. I'd say both of those would be involved in the promises. And the patriarchs, mostly Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, also Jacob's 12 sons. You might even be able to throw in other patriarchs like David if you wanted to, who were important men in that line of God's love for the nation of Israel and how he brought his blessing to the nation. But Paul saves the best for last. He starts off with the scripture and he ends with the Messiah, the scripture in Romans chapter 3 and the Messiah here in Romans chapter 9. Notice that as Paul talks about the Christ here in verse 5, he says that the patriarchs belong to Israel. But he doesn't say the Christ belongs to Israel, but he says instead from their race is the Christ according to the flesh. So the Christ comes from them But he doesn't belong to them in the same way that the patriarchs do because the Christ is not just a man. According to the flesh, yes, he comes from the nation of Israel. But that's not all there is to God's Christ. God's Christ is also, as Paul says here, God over all, blessed forever. Amen. That's quite a statement in the Pauline writings. This could well be the most direct and the most powerful statement of the deity of Jesus Christ in all of Paul's writings. Now, we often think of John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, Theos. But Paul doesn't normally refer to Jesus Christ as Theos, God, He usually reserves that Greek term, God, Theos, to refer to the Father. That's the title that he gives to the Father. And when he's talking about Jesus, he calls him Lord. Now, Lord is also a divine title. You go back to the Old Testament and the Adonai, the Lord, well, that's God. God is the Lord of Israel. And when they would speak about God in the Jewish culture, they wouldn't use his personal name, Yahweh, because they considered God to be too sacred to use his personal name, so they would use the word Adonai instead when they were reading from the scriptural text and were wanting for a replacement instead of using the divine name Yahweh. And so, Lord is a divine title, but here it appears that Paul uses the word Theos, God, to refer to the Christ, a very powerful statement of the deity of Christ. However... It's not without controversy, of course, right? So there are those who will translate this differently. Now, I like the ESV translation here, not just for theological reasons, 
but for grammatical reasons, for contextual reasons. And I think it is the most natural way to read the text, that the Christ is God overall, blessed forever. However, it is also grammatically possible that you could punctuate this text differently. You see, when the early manuscripts of the Bible were written, they were written without punctuation. And they just had the letters. And so the people who would translate the Bible, well, they'd have to figure out, well, where does the punctuation go? Where do we put the period? Where do we put the comma? Where do we put the question mark? They didn't have those in the Greek text. They just had the letters. In fact, they didn't even have spaces between their words. Paper was so valuable, they would just run one word right up next to the next word with no punctuation. And if you know the language well, that's not a problem. You could try it in English. You could just try writing out something and not put any spaces and not put in any punctuation, and you could still read it. It wouldn't be quite as easy as reading with punctuation and spaces, but that's the way they did it. And so this could be that Paul intended to put a period after the word Christ, and then after that he gives this doxology to God the Father, who is overall blessed forever. Amen. That's the way the Revised Standard Version and the New Revised Standard Version translate this passage. I don't think it's the right way to translate this passage for several reasons. I'll give them to you briefly. First off, Paul has just described the human nature of Jesus Christ. According to the flesh, he is from their race. Well, why does he have to say according to the flesh? Is there some other way of thinking of Jesus Christ than according to the flesh? Well, yes, there is. In fact, back up with me to Romans chapter 1. Now, if you were just talking about me, Timothy, according to the flesh, is, is the son of Sharon and Dallas. That's really all there is. There's no other element to talk about. I, I'm born of my parents. But with Jesus, it's different. Because he was born of a virgin. And he was pre-existent. He existed before he became a baby. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul describes it here at the beginning of Romans. Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, the Son of God, who was descended from David according to the flesh. So his natural descent is he's descended from David. But he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So the revelation of his divine nature was made known when the Holy Spirit powerfully raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So you've got his human nature and his divine nature being paralleled or contrasted here in the opening verses of Romans. And so when we come to Romans chapter 9, and Paul once again is talking about according to the flesh, Christ is from the people of Israel, but according to his eternal nature, according to his spiritual nature, he is God overall, blessed forever. So the second part of the sentence here, it completes the thought that he began there in the middle of verse 5. Also, the word order here indicates that this is not a distinct blessing of doxology to God, but that is in fact a description of the Christ, because every place in the Bible, except for maybe one, it's hard to say, there's always a little bit of debate on one or two, right? But almost universally, let me say it that way, when you have a doxology, 
the word order is a specific way of whether God is before or after the word blessed. Well, here it's not like those doxologies. It's not just a statement of blessed be God forever and ever like the Jewish people like to do, right? That Jewish people still do that today, you know, Hashem, blessed be his name. They'll just throw that doxology in there. That's not the grammar that's here. In fact, when it says, who is God overall, what you have there, the most natural way to read it, is it's a connecting particle looking back to Jesus Christ. Who? Who is God? Well, who's the person that Paul's just been talking about? The Christ. So if I said, well, I'm Timothy, the one who preaches in this church, well, who is the one who preaches in the church? Well, Timothy, the one that we were just talking about. Who is the one who is God overall? The Christ. That's the way to read the text. It's just the most natural way of understanding it. And I think the only reason why somebody would force the other punctuation, which is, you know, it's feasible. It's not like you can't have that punctuation. But the only reason I think of somebody would want to put that punctuation is there if they believe that Paul would never use the word theos to describe Jesus. Unless you believe that Paul would never do this here, then the only way to really read it is Jesus Christ is God over all, blessed forever. And of course, Paul did believe that Jesus was divine, that he was the unique Son of God. You can read about the deity of Christ in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, and perhaps the most important passage that relates to this would be Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Titus 2, 13 says, We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who is our great God? Jesus Christ. Of course, some people will quibble with this translation and say, no, we're, we're waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and the Savior, Jesus Christ, and try to separate great God from the Savior. But the grammar should not be read that way. And it's been well demonstrated and proven that when you have a construction like this in the Greek, the great God is the same as the Savior here in Titus 2, verse 13. So here, Paul clearly identifies Jesus Christ as our great God using the word theos. Some people would say, well, yeah, but in Romans chapter 9, Paul is trying to tell the Jewish people how much he loves them. And so he wouldn't come out and offend them so deeply by saying that the Christ is God. I mean, that's the essence of the stumbling block. That's why they killed Jesus Christ to begin with. And if Paul's trying to establish a good relationship with his Jewish brethren, why would he slap them in the face with this truth? Well, because he loves them enough to speak the truth. This is the essence of what they need in order to be saved. And so he's not trying to, to show them his love by hiding the truth from them. He's trying to show them his love by speaking the truth. And the truth is, is that the Christ is God, blessed forever. Amen. He's not blessed by God forever. No, he is God who is blessed forever. That's the way it reads in the Greek. So, we've looked at Romans 9, 1 through 5, and, and what's been the main point? What's been the big idea? Love for Israel. Love for Israel. That's what God wants you to understand today. God's love for Israel, Paul's love for Israel, and by extension, our love for Israel. God wants us to love his son. And I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm talking about Israel. To them belongs the national adoption. They are special in God's sight, and therefore they're special to me, and they're special to you. And they're special to the church. Is Christianity an anti-Jewish religion? May it never be. We love the Jews because God has inscribed them on the palms of his hands. God will never 
never, never forsake his people Israel.